Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware, and today I'm going to venture into the details of the Adam Crosswhite affair. This is an incident that happened in Marshall, Michigan in 1847, which historians sometimes refer to as the first stone thrown into the pond that rippled out, growing into a tidal wave over the decades, eventually erupting into the American Civil War. It happened right here in Southwest Michigan, and it is one you're gonna definitely wanna hear about. I am not only going to tell you the story of Adam Crosswhite and the incident, but I'm also going to cover the history before his arrival in Marshall and the subsequent events that followed leading to the American Civil War, which brought an end to slavery. That way you can see the context of how significant an event this was in the future of our nation. Before I begin, I want to clarify something. I'm going to cover the significant facts and events which I can support in the timeline of this story. On occasion, I will make mention of a particular politician's political affiliation. Please recognize that I'm doing so strictly from a historical perspective to tell the story as accurately as I can and is not meant to be a reflection or reference to the political views of any political party in present day. Remember, these incidents occurred between 150 to 175 years ago, so keep that in mind. So on with our story. Let's begin with the first Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed in 1793. This act authorized local governments to seize and return escapees to their owners and impose penalties to anyone who aided in their flight. Although there were earlier state-level laws on fugitive slaves prior to this, this is historically considered to be the first major law passed by Congress. When the law was passed, it had widespread resistance to its enforcement. One of the most vocal and energetic opponents was the Quakers. Its passing resulted in the Quakers establishing what would become to be known as the Underground Railroad in the 1800s. A Quaker abolitionist named Isaac T. Hopper set up what is considered to be the first network in Philadelphia that helped fugitive slaves on the run. At the same time, Quakers in North Carolina established abolitionist groups that laid the groundwork for routes and shelters for escapees. In addition to the Quakers, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which came later being established in 1816, was another proactive religious group that began helping fugitive slaves. The first known mention of the word Underground Railroad came in 1831, when an enslaved man named Tice Davids escaped from Kentucky into Ohio, and his owner blamed an Underground Railroad for helping Davids to freedom. In 1839, a Washington newspaper reported an escaped slave named Jim, who revealed under torture to his captors his plan to go north following an underground railroad to Boston. Vigilance committees began to be created to protect escaped slaves from bounty hunters in New York in 1835 and in Philadelphia in 1838, and soon their activities expanded to guiding fugitive slaves on the run. By 1849, the term Underground Railroad, although a covert activity for the most part, was part of the American vernacular. Most of the slaves helped by the Underground Railroad were from border states like Kentucky, Virginia, and Maryland. 
In the Deep South, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 made slave capturing a lucrative business, and there were few hiding places for slaves on the run in those areas. When on the run, they were typically on their own until they reached certain points farther north, usually in border states. People known as conductors guided the fugitives. Their hiding places included private homes, churches, and schoolhouses. These places were called stations, safe houses, and depots. The people operating them were called station masters. In Battle Creek, for example, Erastus Hussey was one of the well-known station masters who ran the station from his home and from his business in downtown Battle Creek. There were many well-used routes stretching west from Ohio to Indiana and Iowa. Others headed north through Pennsylvania and into New England. The route into Michigan typically entered from Indiana near Cass County at Cassopolis, then across to Schoolcraft or Centerville, then up to Climax through Battle Creek, then on to Marshall, Albion, Parma, Jackson, and eventually on into Detroit. They also came through Ohio, through Adrian, Clinton, into Ann Arbor, over to Ypsilanti, and then on to Detroit. There were a few other routes, one turning north from Battle Creek through the area of Charlotte and just south of Lansing, crossing over to the Canadian border to the north of Lake St. Clair. All the routes in Michigan would take them ultimately to Canada, crossing near Detroit into Windsor, or to the north at Point Edward in Port Huron Township. So this was the climate when Adam Crosswhite, an escaped slave from Kentucky, escaped with his family and ventured onto the Underground Railroad in 1846. His case would become nationally known and serve as the stone thrown into the pond, creating the ripples that grew into the waves that ultimately exploded into the American Civil War. In January 7, 1876, many years after the Civil War was concluded, the True Northerner newspaper out of Paw Paw, Michigan, ran an article published in the Marshall Statesman that covered the entire story of what became known as the Crosswright Affair. A detailed account of the events between 1847 to 1848 surrounding the Crosswright incident were recorded in the article. I'm going to take you through that article now. It begins by saying, During the winter of 1847, there stood on the property now owned by Mr. James T. Downs in the eastern part of this city, referring to Marshall, a humble dwelling. The house was located near a grove. A colored family occupied the place. The history of that family forms the subject of this sketch. Adam Crosswhite was born in Bourbon County, Kentucky, October 17, 1799. His father, under the laws of that state, his master, his mother, being at the time of his birth a slave. At an early age, Adam was given by his father to his half-sister as a servant. Miss Crosswhite afterwards married Ned Stone, a notorious slaveholder, who, if not the original Simon Legree of Uncle Tom's Cabin, might have been so similar that his life and character to those so graphically portrayed by Mrs. Stowe. Stone retained possession of the boy Adam for a time and then sold him to a man named Troutman for $200. When 20 years of age, the boy was traded off to one Frank 
Giltner, who lived in Carroll County, with whom he stayed until age 45. When age 22, Adam married, and at the age of 35 was the father of seven children. At that time, he became aware of Giltner's intention to sell a portion of his family. Watching his opportunity, he obtained a skiff and, with his family, pushed off for Madison, which was Madison, Indiana. There he was received by the Underground Railroad managers and sent north. At Newport, Indiana, the pursuers came upon the party, and by that time, the party had swollen into a flock of 20 people. The fugitives were hidden by the Quakers and protected for many days. There's an incident that is related as how a young friend disconcerted the hunters. He represented himself as a slave hunter himself and gained their confidence, assuring them that he knew their hiding place. He took the party, just at night, into a dense swamp, and leaving them on some slight pretext, failed to return. The party was lost in the woods all night, thereby relieving the poor slaves of considerable anxiety. Crosswhite was compelled to leave his wife and two of his children at this place and push on. His experience from Indiana into Michigan and his wife's experience five weeks later might be written up to form an interesting book. Such is the rapidly traced history of the occupants of the little house above reference to here in Marshall. Crosswhite was known as an industrious, quiet man. He had paid a portion of the purchase money for his place. Early in 1846 to 1847, there came to Marshall a young man who represented himself as a lawyer. He did not make known his business, but strayed through the town as though undecided about his permanent residence here. There was at the time residing here a man named Harvey Dixon, who was a deputy sheriff, whom the stranger seemed to take an interest in. Evidently, some work was to be done, and Dixon was the chosen tool. The stranger turned out to be Francis Troutman, grandson of the former owner of Adam Crosswhite, and his business in Marshall was to recover the fugitives. He had obtained a knowledge of their whereabouts through a friend to whom it chanced that Mrs. Crosswhite had unwittingly revealed her husband's location. Troutman was uncertain of the identity of Crosswhite and the children and employed Dixon to impersonate a census collector and ascertain the required facts. This Dixon did, and it is alleged he did it for the modest sum of $5. In the meantime, it became noised around town so it reached Adam Crosswhite that there was a systematic attempt to be made to carry his family off. Troutman and three as dark-browed rascals as one cares to meet arranged with a livery man to have a team ready on a given night at 12 o'clock. The livery man left word at the stable that the horses were not to be sent until he gave orders. Orders were not given until toward morning. Crosswhite was prepared to meet his enemies. It was understood that a gunshot was a signal for the assembling of his friends. So apparently Crosswhite got wind of the pending attempt to snatch him and his family and he made arrangements with some of his friends and neighbors to come running when he fired a gunshot in the air. And that was basically the signal they worked out. Two men placed their shoulders against the door and broke it down. The men then sought to persuade Crosswhite to go with them, saying that they had come to arrest him and wanted him at a justice office downtown. They offered to carry him and his family to the office in a wagon. 
this subterfuge did not work. In the meantime, about 200 people had assembled and were ridiculing the slave hunters. The four men were armed to the teeth, but were too cowardly to use forcible means to take runaways. Trotman said that there was one child that he did not want, but the rest he demanded, as they were fugitive slaves. This speech was received with laughter by the crowd when it was understood that it was proposed to take the mother and leave an infant the crowd may have used threats against the four men but that is a disputed point they just essentially laughed at him saying that's not going to happen basically so later in the morning uh, charles gorman jarvis heard and oc comstock and others went up to the scene of the trouble they took no part in the proceedings but listened to the harangue of troutman who was offering resolutions to the effect as as all law-abiding citizens the people should not interfere with the taking of crosswhite and his family the fact of their presence was enough to satisfy troutman he obtained their names Finally, the crowd went down to Marshall House. Crosswhite appeared on the streets and was advised to prosecute Troutman. This he did. The attacking party were arrested and fined, Van Arman appearing in prosecution. Later in the day, George Ingersoll quietly obtained funds and sent the Crosswhite family to Jackson, and he followed behind them in the railroad cars. At Jackson, the family entered the cars and were carried to Detroit, and from there they went on into Canada. All this during the time that the hunting party was arrested. Troutman and his friends returned to Kentucky, vowing vengeance on the men who had aided in the liberation of the slaves. The vows made by Troutman were destined to be fulfilled, although it is probable that the loudmouth boastings of his party, while here, were more for the effect than in earnest when uttered fate set their seal upon the acts of the marauding party and followed it with unrelenting acidity troutman related the incidents connected with his defeat in marshall to his friends at home and so indignant were they that steps were taken to convene a town meeting the object of which was to insist upon the observance of laws in due time, the town meeting was held, and at it, Troutman grossly misrepresented the Marshall affair. The citizens of this place were described as armed ruffians who resisted the execution of the laws of the country by force. The outgrowth of the town meeting was a county meeting, the object which was a similar and primary assembly. Hereupon, the story of the northern outrage was repeated with graphic embellishments. With the increasing size of the meeting, the popular indignation, and the falsehoods of Troutman's friends, Troutman saw that there was no turning back from the course that he had taken, and he was determined to carry his point by dint of continued misrepresentations. From the county meeting, the matter was taken to the legislature of Kentucky, and there an appropriation was made to prosecute the leaders of the mob up in Marshall. Troutman, who saw that there was no alternative, accepted the mission of returning and teaching the cursed northerners their duty. Messieurs Pat and Crary were obtained. In fact, nearly all the lawyers and lawyers' clerks in this section were retained by Troutman. He was a shrewd fellow and adroitly set to work to manufacture evidence to support the stories that he had circulated in Kentucky and upon the strength of which the 
state appropriation had been made. For several weeks, Troutman remained in the town. His method of work was to meet some man who was easily influenced and ask him if he remembered hearing Dr. Comstock or Mr. Gorman or Mr. Hurd say so-and-so on the day of the quote-unquote riot. The fellow would partially recall something and finally he was ready to go upon the stand and swear to such language the man dixon remember that guy he was the deputy sheriff was troutman's right hand man when sufficient testimony had been obtained to warrant trial suit was brought in the united states court in detroit the defendants numbering a dozen or more at first was dwindled down to three, C.T. Gorman, Jarvis Hurd, and O.C. Comstock, the three that had arrived late on the scene and were just taking in and observing. The trial began in the later part of 1847 and lasted three weeks. The jury disagreed. In 1848, the second trial began. Prominent Democratic politicians went to one of the defendants, namely C.T. Gorman, who was at that time a Democrat, and declared that, Although personally friendly to him, they wanted the case to go against the defendants. Lewis Cass was then a candidate for president. Remember Lewis Cass? He had been a governor during the territorial years and then joined the Andrew Jackson administration. And at this point, I believe he was serving somewhere in the court system over in Detroit. So the article goes on that Lewis Cass was then a candidate for president. He ran against Zachary Taylor in that election and eventually lost. With Lewis Cass running for president, the politician wanted at that particular time, as they expressed it, the South to understand that Detroit and Michigan sympathized with the slaveholding element. They were willing to prostitute themselves and commit an act of gross injustice to a personal friend in order to secure the Southern vote in favor of Lewis Cass. This is all written in this article. These are not my words. They assured the defendants that should the case be decided against them, the Democrats would assist in paying the bills. So essentially what they were trying to do is get the defendants who were Democrats to agree to be in the wrong on the incident and accept a fine so that it would look good for the South. The case came to trial and was defended by Judge H.H. H. Emmons and J.F. Joy and Theodore Romerin. After a hard-fought struggle, the case was decided, as Lewis Cass wanted it to be, in favor of the slave hunters. The defendants were required to pay about $1,900 plus costs. The men who were so anxious to serve Cass's interests failed to remember their promise to help. But in the trying hour, three other men stepped up and paid the fines in the name of justice so that these men would not have to endure the burden of the costs. The equities of this case were not considered by the court or jury as illustrated of the lamentable condition of society in reference to the question of slavery and the subserviency of northern men to the will of the South. They state that one of the jurors, who was a Whig afterwards, said to Mr. Gorin that it was extremely unpleasant to at least a portion of the jury that they had to conclude and bring a verdict against the defendants, for they concluded it was best not to do so, which was an, an account of the popular sentiment at the time in the state. Most of the state of Michigan were 
very much in the abolitionist camp, and they disagreed with slavery. Um, this whole incident became a very detestable thing for those living in the state, particularly in Marshall, that observed the incident, that they would rule in favor of the slave hunters. So the article goes on to explain that the men that paid the fine knew that the case would eventually go to the higher court, and the matter would ultimately be very disastrous, so they decided to end the whole matter in Detroit. So the defendants saw that the, an appeal was worse than folly because they considered that justice was indeed blinded in this case. In other words, the South had a lot of influence in Washington and with the higher courts during this time period. So they considered that there was no possibility of obtaining a verdict in their favor. And during that time, defendants could not testify on their own behalf. So the only method of procedure was the impeachment of the complainant's witnesses and nothing further in the line could be done than had already been accomplished in the two trials in Detroit. So the court systems were considerably different back then. So Lewis Cass was ultimately defeated by Zachary Taylor, who was elected to the presidency. But it goes on to say in this article that it was written on the scroll of fate that the seed grown in the soil of Marshall should bear abundant fruit in reference to turning around of the injustice of slavery. Henry Clay took the case into the Senate chamber and there advocated for the necessity of more stringent fugitive slave laws. So the riotous scenes enacted near the humble cabin of Adam Crosswhite received national consideration. The law of 1793 was considered to be too lenient at that point. So Mr. Clay took it upon as a personal interest in this matter, especially with the Adam Crosswhite incident, to take the fight in Washington to create a more stringent fugitive slave law. The result of Clay's efforts was the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. And it says in this article, this was the most damnable law that ever received the sanction of the American Congress. And so the article goes on to say that the history of the succeeding 15 years was written in blood. The wave of destruction which grew from the ripple caused in Marshall swept across the country. The names of the few noble men who fought the earlier battles for freedom and the million brave souls who faced death for the sake of a principle are mentioned with reverence wherever the theme is broached. The martyrs Lincoln and John Brown had a glorious list of fallen heroes, and the stain of slavery has been obliterated from the nation's tablets by the crimson hand of war. So that was quite poetic how they wrote that and explained it in the article. So in the years that followed, as they mention in this article, following the incident, as described, the Compromise of 1850 was passed. This was a series of five bills that were championed by Henry Clay, a Whig, with the support of senators like Stephen Douglas, a Democrat from Illinois. And in this package of five bills, one was the new Fugitive Slave Act, which was included in this package from the pressure given to Congress by the Southerners. The other bills included in this Compromise of 1850 included a bill suppressing the slave trade in the District of Columbia, 
which is kind of regarded as something that was given as a token for the Fugitive Slave Act to the North. The other three bills that were in the package included admitting the state of California into the Union. Another one established the territory of Utah. And the fifth one established the state of Texas's northern and western boundaries and also established the territory of New Mexico. So that was the Compromise of 1850. So this new Fugitive Slave Act was considerably stronger than the earlier one. It included new regulations that sought to forcibly compel citizens to assist in the capture of runaways. It also denied slaves the right to a trial by jury and increased the penalty for interfering with the rendition process to $1,000 per incident and six months in jail. Additionally, the law was placed in the hands of federal commissioners. So this was the first time the federal government was taking an enforcement role in the matter of slavery, and they established these federal commissioners to execute the implementation of this law in every state. So these agents were paid more for returning a suspected runaway than for freeing them, leading many to argue that the law was biased in favor of the Southern slaveholders. The new Fugitive Slave Act was met with even more impassioned criticism and resistance than the earlier one. States like Vermont and Wisconsin passed new measures intended to bypass and even nullify the law, and abolitionists redoubled their efforts to assist runaways. I should also mention that all of the conductors, station masters, and other persons helping with the fugitive slaves at this point were facing not only these large fines of $1,000, which would be the equivalent of $36,000 in today's dollars, they were also facing jail time. Many of these volunteers could have been charged as multiple offenders as well, along with the initial risk. So as expected, there was a lot of secrecy that went along with the act. Activity. And as a result, records were seldom kept of their activities for fear of it being found out and used against them. Resistance of this new Fugitive Slave Act also occasionally boiled over into riots and revolts. In 1851, a mob of anti-slavery activists rushed a Boston courthouse and forcibly liberated an escapee named Shadrach Minkins from federal custody. Similar rescues were made in New York, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Widespread opposition to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 saw the law become virtually unenforceable in certain northern states, and by 1860, only around 330 enslaved people in total had been successfully returned to their southern masters. A considerably higher number found freedom in Canada. The Southerners perhaps intended to force cooperation on the northern neighbors by pushing for this legislation, but the result was even a further polarization between both regions. Republican and Free Soil congressmen later would regularly introduce bills and resolutions related to the repealing of the Fugitive Slave Act, but the law persisted until after the beginning of the Civil War. And it wasn't until June 28, 1864 that both of the Fugitive Slave Acts were repealed by an act of Congress. In 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was introduced and passed and signed 
signed into law by President Franklin Pierce. This act created two territories and repealed an earlier act passed in 1820 called the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise admitted Missouri into the Union as a slave state and also Maine as a free state. While banning slavery from the remaining portion of the Louisiana Purchase, located north of the 36 degree 300 foot parallel. This was essentially a line that was drawn westward, creating a dividing line preventing slave states north of that line. In 1854, the southern slaveholders were beginning to see that newer territories were not becoming slave states, and they were beginning to bring pressure to anyone in Congress that would listen to them. They found it in Democrat Senator Stephen Douglas, much like they found support in Michigan from Lewis Cass. Douglas drafted the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise, and he touted this act as a peaceful settlement to the national debate regarding slavery. The act introduced the concept of popular sovereignty, which allowed for new territories to vote independently, north and south, regardless of any geographic line that had previously was established in the Missouri Compromise, as to whether they wanted slavery or not. But the result after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act was a violent uprising, and it became known as Bleeding Kansas. Pro-slavery and anti-slavery activists descended on the new territory of Kansas during the week that the vote was to be held in an effort to swing the vote. The anti-slavery activists were mostly religious followers of Quakerism and Methodism, holding their Bibles and prayer books, trying to convince the population to vote against slavery, and the pro-slavery activists came with clubs and other weapons resulting in a bloodbath. And this whole incident became known as Bleeding Kansas, and it set the nation one step closer to the Civil War. The political turmoil led to the destruction and disbanding of the Whig coalition and saw the rise of the new Republican Party, formed by passionate abolitionists and the remnants of the Whig Party. Further adding to the turmoil in the country was the 1857 decision a few years later in the Dred Scott case held before the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, to explain the Dred Scott case, and I'll try to go through this as quickly as possible, but it's it is it had a, a huge bearing on what led into the Civil War. Um, Dred Scott was a slave owned by John Emerson of Missouri. In 1833, Emerson undertook a series of moves around the country as part of his service in the U.S. military from Missouri, a slave state, to Illinois, a free state, and later to Wisconsin, which was a territory, and it was a free territory. And during that time, he was there with Dred Scott, who was with him, and Dred Scott married Harriet Robinson, who would become part of the Emerson household. Emerson himself married in 1838, and in the early 1840s, he and his wife returned with the Scots to Missouri, where he died in 1843. So they'd spent a few years up in these free states living while he was in the military. Now, Scott attempted to purchase his own freedom from Emerson's widow, who refused to do so. In 1846, with the help of 
anti-slavery lawyers, Harriet and Dred Scott filed individual lawsuits for freedom in the Missouri State Court, citing that they could be considered free because they previously had been a resident in a free state, and they were therefore free citizens, and the move back to a slave state could not reverse their freedom. That was the grounding and the foundation of the Scott versus Emerson case, which took years to resolve, but in 1850, the state court declared Scott free. The verdict, however, in 1852 was reversed by the Missouri Supreme Court, which at that time invalidated Missouri's longstanding doctrine, which said that once you're free, you're always free. No, they went against that, and they reversed the decision. So following this, Emerson's widow then left the state of Missouri and gave control of the Scots over to her brother, John Sanford. Now, Scott's lawyers continued the fight, filing suit in federal court because Sanford was not a subject of the earlier suit in Missouri, so therefore they moved it to a higher court. It eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court. The argument for Scott's was, again, that he had been a resident of a free state and therefore was no longer a slave. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Roger Book. Tanny issued a ruling that historians have since argued as the worst decision ever by the U.S. Supreme Court. His ruling stated that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional and that African Americans were not and could never be citizens of the United States. He argued that former slaves could be citizens of a state, and some were, and may even be granted the right to vote, but that did not extend to the national level. So further compounding the problem was the arguments that he included in his decision of the unconstitutionality of the Missouri Compromise, which some at that time argued that it opened the door for slavery into free states, whether they wanted it or not. So this ruling added more fuel to the national fire and the national tension. One year later, in 1858, Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas was running for re-election, and his challenger was a lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, who was representing the newly formed Republican Party. And they held a series of debates, which became nationally known as the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And in these debates, which became somewhat heated at times, the issues of the Missouri Compromise, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and its popular sovereignty law, and the Dred Scott decision, and the topic of slavery were hashed out and expounded upon at great length. And what made these debates more significant than any other ones previous was that there were stenographers creating a record of all that was said, and a new technology called the telegraph was used to send these transcripts to newspapers all over the country. So this further brought the slavery issue to the forefront of the average citizen and lionized or vilified both candidates for one side or the other. Now, Stephen Douglas ultimately won that election for Senate, and in 1860, Abraham Lincoln ran for president. So when Abraham Lincoln ran for president and won largely from his support from the abolitionist in this newly formed Republican Party, this incited the Southerners, which ultimately led to the first shots fired in the Civil War a short time after his inauguration. And that conflict, as we know, lasted approximately four years and brought an ultimate resolution to the issue of slavery as well as many other issues that were at hand 
during that time period. So this entire chain of events, although over many years, could be traced back to Marshall, Michigan, with the Adam Crosswhite incident almost two decades earlier as one of the earliest events in this timeline. Today, there's a historic marker in the city of Marshall across from the fountain at the center of town, which tells part of the story of Adam Crosswhite and the time when a bunch of brave citizens stood in defiance of evil. And with that, I'm going to conclude today's journey into this interesting timeline of history. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe or do whatever you do on whatever app you're listening to so you can continue to get future episodes of my podcast. I release new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. And in the month of April, I am planning to add some bonus episodes on Sunday. So be sure to listen for that. If you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, visit my website at michaeldelaware.com. There's a link in the top menu bar when you visit the website where you can shop for merchandise like cool sweatshirts and t-shirts and that sort of thing. And there's also another link where if you just want to make a direct donation to my work, you can click on that as well. Thanks for listening today and I hope you'll join me next time as I journey into more tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.